Amen. I would invite you to take your pew Bible, whichever Bible you have, and open to Romans 8. We'll be reading from Romans 8, 31 through 39. And out of respect for God's word, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Here in Romans 8, page 1123 in your pew Bible. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I invite you now to turn to the book of Ruth we continue our series through the book of Ruth. We'll be looking at verses 6 to 22 this evening. That's on page 262 of your pew Bible. Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. Then she, Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. 
If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. So far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word again this evening, Lord, we're reminded that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would add your Spirit's blessing to illumine our hearts and minds that we might see Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, I think friendship is an underrated thing today. I mean, in my opinion, it is. Lots of people have said that, you know, friendship is a dying art. But networking, on the other hand, that's huge. Right? You see networking everywhere. How can I leverage this relationship into money? It's everywhere. And I'm not trying to denigrate networking. It's something people ought to do. We kind of need to do it. Um, There's nothing wrong with it. But if you think just because somebody gave you their business card, your friends, well, come on, get real. Uh, And don't get me started about, you know, all 1,500 of our closest friends on Facebook. (laughs) Is that really what a friend is? In the truest sense, no. When things go haywire, it's when you find out who your friends are. I think there's a song about that somewhere. Networks, they come and go. But a true friend is worth keeping through thick and thin, isn't he? And in our passage this evening, we see a true friend in Ruth. And that's really the theme I want us to focus in on, I want us to see that Ruth is a friend who refuses to stop loving her family, even 
family that thinks they're cursed. She's a true friend that doesn't stop loving her cursed family, even in spite of protests. Something worth meditating on and thinking about this evening. You know, we last left the story of Ruth in the ash heap of tragedy, didn't we? The family had compromised, and they left the promised land during a famine. They went to go live in the cursed land of Moab, and one by one, everybody starts dying. Well, all the men, right? And then the women are left holding the bag there in a man's world. And it was really a man's world back then. If Orpah and Ruth had any sense, you would imagine that they would go back to their families in Moab and remarry. Of course, that's not really an option for Naomi. She's an Israelite. It's been a decade. She says she's old. Uh, She can't remarry. She's powerless, and she's hopeless. She's wondering, remember, can anything good come out of all of this? How much worse do things have to get before she repents and turns back to God, goes back to the promised land? I mean, can't get much worse there at least, right? It's pretty bad there in Moab for her. What has she got to lose? And that's what happens. We hear in verse 6 that Naomi and the girls get up to go return from Moab because she heard that God had visited his people with bread. The famine is finished. And as they're on the road, you know, Naomi's thinking to herself, and it becomes clear that Orpah and Ruth had better stay in Moab, live their lives there. It was a nice gesture, you know, that they didn't abandon her right away. But, um, you know, Moabitesses, they're not exactly going to be popular in the promised land. No, they're going to be pariahs in the promised land, subject to prejudice if they show up. And Naomi knew that. He's not going to ask them to put up with that. And there's this big emotional scene. They're all weeping and wailing. They're hugging, and then Naomi kisses them goodbye, tells them to return home. And she wishes them success in finding new husbands to take care of them. In those days, you know, it was a tough world for women. Women were either married and protected by their husband, or they were protected by their family and provided for by their family. And if not, then they would probably be outside begging, uh, in constant danger of attack, maybe doing stuff they're not proud of, uh, to put bread on the table. And Naomi doesn't want that for her daughter-in-laws. She wants them to have a life of peace and wholeness. That's more than Naomi could really expect at this point. It's really a touching scene. It's emotional. And Orpah and Ruth, they they weren't ready to turn their back on their mother-in-law, were they? In verse 10, they said they want to go with her. And she tells them, no, 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 turn around. It's like the chorus throughout this passage. Turn around and go back to your home. She said, it'd be foolish for you to come with me. I mean, Naomi's a practical woman. She's just laying out the practical reality. She's counting the cost of discipleship. She's got nothing to offer them. And then she comes up with this ridiculous hypothetical situation about giving birth to a son and then them waiting till he's old enough to marry. And she said, look, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. When pigs fly, 
girls. That's when it's going to happen. Do you see a man around here? Do I have a husband? Do you know something that I don't? Last time I checked, I'm too old for this, and I'm not married. And even if I were, you wouldn't wait 20 years for the guy. Come on, go home. Go home. And then she really lays it on thick. The clincher comes in verse 13. Naomi claims that the Lord is against her. God's cursed me, is what she's saying. She's telling her daughter-in-laws to flee from God's curse, flee from the wrath of God by going back to Moab. I don't know if that's great advice, but it's how she felt. To be determined if it's true, but you could understand why she felt that way. Everybody around her is dying. There she is, a stranger in a foreign land, and she's rough, right? Her argument is go home. Moabitesses won't be welcomed. Go home. It's foolish for you to come with me. I got nothing to offer. Go home. God has cursed me. Why would you ruin your life over me? What have you got to gain? She's been repeating herself. She's not just being polite here. She said it three times. Go home, go home, go home. (laughs) She's serious. And so with that, Orpah doesn't about face. She turns around and goes back to Moab through the tears. But Ruth stays. She clings, it says, to her mother-in-law. Beautiful picture of love right there. Naomi gives Ruth one last personal invitation to turn around and go home like Orpah did, but Ruth is having none of it. She found her home there with Naomi, and she's not about to leave. The day had come for Ruth to set her face like flint and go to Bethlehem for all the turning and returning that you see in these verses, Ruth is not swerving in her commitment to Naomi. It's wonderful that Naomi has this small attempt at repentance, at turning around and seeking the Lord, going back to the promised land. I mean, it's a little half-hearted <laughs> repentance, if you could call it that. It's, it's bitter repentance. It's half-hearted. It's something. It's nothing compared to the constant, unswerving love of Ruth for her mother-in-law. It doesn't hold a candle to Ruth. You've got to look at what's motivating Ruth here. What's gotten into Ruth? Love. It's it's love that's got Ruth. In, In verses 16 and 17, we have one of the most beautiful confessions of love you'll see anywhere in the world. And I was just talking to someone this morning. They said, we used this in our wedding. Very appropriate, beautiful confession of love. Let's hear it again. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me more also, 
if anything but death parts me from you. You got to spend some time there. That's beautiful stuff. Ruth's saying there, quit trying to tell me to, to get lost. I'm not going to. And then we see how determined she is. You know, whatever, or wherever Naomi goes, that's where Ruth says she's going to go. And wherever Naomi lodges, that's where Ruth is going to lodge. It's very poetic, you know, beautiful. Makes our hearts kind of jump for joy when we read it. Give a sentimental sigh. And I, I think we should. It really is great language. Um, but don't get distracted by that. I mean, what's actually being said here? Think about it. Ruth isn't saying this so you could put it on a greeting card. She's saying this to Naomi. She's saying this to an old bag lady, okay? She's homeless. Where the bag lady sleeps at night under the overpass, that's where I'm going to sleep. This isn't sappy sentimentalism. This is like rip your heart out, homeless love that Ruth is showing. And then she goes on, your people, my people. There's actually no verbs in the original. It's striking language. And you're like, whoa, your people, my people. Tremendous confession. Ruth the Moabitess is here rejecting her citizenship and you know, I, I don't claim to know how immigration worked in the ancient world. I won't pretend to. But I'm pretty sure that the Israelites wouldn't be lined up at the Jordan River to shake her hand when she crossed over. And from the perspective of Moab, I mean, what were they thinking? They didn't really like the Israelites either. I mean, to them, this is basically treason on Ruth's part. Ruth is turning her back on any form of earthly security for love's sake. This isn't hallmark love. This is treasonous love. And Ruth is, she's not interested in some form of outward conformity. What she says, she wants to be transformed by godly love. I'm not just going to immigrate. Your God, my God. She's leaving behind Moab, and she's leaving behind her pagan gods, like Chemesh, the, the pagan wicked god of Moab. And what's she getting in return? Well, it's a pretty good deal. She's getting the true God. She's getting the Lord, but what does she know about the Lord? I mean, I think she's been taught about the Lord by who? Naomi? Is she a great teacher? I mean, by all appearances, Naomi is like not the person I would be putting in charge of the discipleship program at our church. <laughs> no, she's, she's bitter. She's got a bad attitude. Didn't matter. Ruth wants that Lord. What did she know? Well, she just was told that the Lord cursed Naomi. Didn't matter. Ruth wants that God, along with the curse, for love's sake. She's not interested in comfortable churchianity when you feel like it. As far as Ruth knew, this is anathematized love that she's entering into. Ruth goes on to explain she's willing to take that curse for love's sake. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. She's saying this is permanent love. 
He's willing to die for it. And burial is a huge deal to the Jews, especially in the ancient world. To be buried apart from your home, that's not a good thing. It's part of the reason why Jacob's bones had to be brought back to the promised land from Egypt, boys and girls. It's why when you read the books of Kings, it says, so-and-so was buried with his fathers in the tombs. They make a big deal about that. And Ruth is saying, Naomi, I'm a woman without a country now. Naomi, you are my home. Where you are, that's home. It's not puppy love, graveside love that Ruth is confessing. And then she invokes the Lord and asks him to curse her if she fails to live up to that vow of love. May God do worse than death to me if I forsake you. It's not based on anything that she wants to get out of the relationship, is it? She's not going to get anything out of this relationship with Naomi, by all earthly appearances, is she? She's entering into this love to take Naomi's curse upon herself permanently. She's not into networking. This is risky love. It's dangerous love. It's cursed love that Ruth is confessing here. You know, I don't think Ruth probably knew a whole lot about God at this point. But I hope that we can all see, brothers and sisters, that Ruth is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his curse-taking love for us. If Jesus were operating from self-love, he would have left mankind in our curse, just like Orpah left Naomi. But he set his face like flint, and he marched all the way to Calvary to the cross, for the joy set before him. He took that curse upon himself by taking flesh to himself to be crucified for us. He was born in a manger. He slept under the overpass. For love's sake, he became poor. He died the death we deserved in our place upon the cross. Where you die, where you were supposed to die, I'll die. And then he was buried in a borrowed tomb that was meant for us. Where you ought to be buried, that's where I'm going to be buried for you. So that now Jesus Christ can say to his people, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. What did he say to us? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because he's given us his spirit. It's the guarantee, the seal of our salvation. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that now, brothers and sisters, we can ask, what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing, not even death can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ because he's conquered death. He's been raised from the grave and he's ascended and overcome hell and sin and the curse so that from that cross he could offer healing and blessing. He's become the tree of life for his people there at the cross. So brothers and sisters, let's take this vow upon our lips 
and give it back to Jesus. Let us then give him our whole hearts sincerely. Let us pick up our cross and follow him wherever the Spirit leads and offer selfless love to God. And I wonder this evening, how many times have you done that? With every head bowed and every eye closed, how many times have you made that vow? Several, probably. It's a great vow. It's a wonderful vow. It's a vow that we should all be making. Absolutely. But how long did it take for you to fail? How long did it take for your love to swerve? I'm no Ruth, and I don't think any of us are. I I wish I was. Don't get me wrong. Sincerity is a wonderful thing, and we ought to be sincere. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is sincerity is a lousy Savior. Jesus is a great Savior. Even the best of us in this life, even our best days of repentance and sincerity are only baby steps. We need to repent of even our repentance because everything about us is touched by sin. I wish I were Ruth, but you know who I actually relate to in this story? Naomi. I think she sums me up pretty well. I'm not half as grateful to God for his grace as I ought to be. I doubt that any of us are. After this tremendous vow of unconditional love from her daughter-in-law, Ruth, you don't hear Naomi say a thing, do you? They just keep walking until they're home again in Bethlehem, and it's quite the scene, you know, a homecoming ten years in the making. And I wonder what it looked like. Now, I'd like to think that Naomi, her name meant pleasant. I'd like to think that when she left town, she looked kind of pleasant. I picture her like, you know, the starry-eyed church girl, pigtails, ribbon in her hair, and red polka dot dress. Goes off and then gets all beat up, bruised, and bitter in the big bad world. And here she comes ten years later. I think we've all met this woman before. We've heard this story before. We've probably been the ones gawking at this woman. Is that Naomi? You know, everybody's in shock when she comes walking into town. I hardly recognize her. I can't believe she's even alive. Wow, I never thought I'd see her again. And then what does Naomi say? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Pleasant. Call me Mara. What's Mara mean? Call me bitter. Bitter. For the Almighty's dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Pleasant when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty brought calamity upon me. In our lingo, God's got it out for me. That's what she's saying. That's a confession. Pretty much as bold as Ruth's, isn't it? Now, we don't hear a lot of, about God doing stuff explicitly, at least from the narrator here in the book of Ruth, but, you know, Naomi is more than happy to clue us in about what God's been doing. 
And don't get me wrong, I mean, God's not taking his hands off the situation. He's still sovereign. But her attitude is like, whoa. It should strike us that here in God's word, God is pleased to hang out in the background while his people are casting dispersions upon him. How much more in our own day? God is merciful. He's patient with us. Naomi said she went away full. She came back empty. I think we all get where she's coming from here. She had a husband dead, two sons dead. And then in verse 2, we were told she's an Ephrathite. That's a cryptic reference. And commentators argue back and forth about what that means. But it seems like she would have been a part of a leading family there in Bethlehem. It, it's probably a reference to one of Caleb's wives. And one of the commentators said it would, would have been like during the famine when they left to go to Moab, perhaps they would have been saying, look, the Rockefellers have become sharecroppers. Maybe a little bit exaggerated, but you get the idea. It's, oh, how the mighty have fallen, is the idea. She feels like God's pulled the rug out from under her. The gawking neighbors kind of confirm that, don't they? And to be sure, I don't envy Naomi's situation. And I would hope that we would all do better. But this is tough. Anyway, she's not telling the whole truth here, is she? Notice verse 22. The narrator here, he takes a subtle jab at Naomi's confession. Kind of tongue-in-cheek. He says that Naomi returned, not empty, but with Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law. You know, the loving daughter-in-law who just gave up everything to stick by her side. And on top of that, we know that Naomi left Bethlehem during a famine, and now she's returning when? Well, the beginning of the barley harvest. Oh, I guess that's just dumb luck. Right? Well, no. The Lord is providentially caring. Even for Naomi, cranky old Naomi, the one who just badmouthed him in front of the whole town. Like a mother who still cooks dinner every night, even though the kids complain, make fun of the cooking, she keeps cooking out of love for her children. Is Naomi only going to attribute the hard providence to God? and not the good? Brothers and sisters, God is so gracious, isn't he? Even to those people who mock him with the mouths that he gave them and the breath that he put in their lungs, he still sends the rain and the food to feed them. Well, I don't doubt that many of us here in this room are dealing with difficult situations, things that if we could, we would change in a minute. And I wouldn't blame you if you did. Of course, nobody wishes their family would die like Naomi's. And of course, no one relishes the prospect of becoming an old woman begging on the streets of Bethlehem for the rest of your short, tragic life. But as Christians, we do need to trust that God is working all things together for our salvation. And in fact, that's the story here in Ruth. Zoom up to 10,000 feet and you'll see it. God is in the middle of all these tragic situations. 
orchestrating every single thing that happened to bring about tremendous blessing, not just for Naomi, but for the whole world in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, even in the midst of Naomi's ingratitude and our ingratitude. Brothers and sisters, God loved Naomi even at her worst. God has loved us at our worst. So then let us love the worst and be willing to take the worst for love's sake. Though we're often tempted to act like Naomi, to lose heart, to feel like we've been cursed and abandoned by God, we need to look at the cross again and remember what Jesus said as our substitute. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken because we will never be forsaken by God. Because he was cut off, we've been restored to fellowship. That's the good news. God bore the curse of our sins in Jesus Christ so that he could bless us unconditionally. Let's not be ungrateful for that grace, that curse-taking love, but let us instead strive to enter into that love and be God's hands and feet to show that love to the world, to the cursed race of mankind, even as Ruth entered into that love and loved her own cursed family by taking the curse upon herself with a love that was willing to cross the pain line. Jesus Christ crossed the pain line for us when he took that curse upon the cross. In Jesus Christ, God's electing hand reached down into the flames and plucked us out as a brand plucked from the fire. So let us love our neighbors as ourselves, even in the midst of the curse. For this is surely God's will for your life and mine in Jesus Christ. Wonderful ideal. But thank God that even when you and I fail at this love, which I'm sure we have today, God's free love in Jesus Christ never fails. Jesus Christ is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, even when we're acting like Naomi. His grace is never-ending. Thank God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that even though we as your church, we look a lot like Naomi, you never forsook Naomi and you have not forsaken your church. In fact, you've given us all things in Jesus Christ who is our substitute, who died in our place and is raised so that we might have hope. Oh Lord, give us hope in him. Help us to read your love in all our daily interactions and help us to love others even as we love ourselves because of your love for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.